Have you ever had a rotten day? Ever had a bad day? Ever had one of those days where everything falls apart, where everything's bad, where nothing's good, and nothing works out? Alexander had one of those days. In fact, Alexander, he had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. This is what Alexander says about his day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I get out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. We've had some of those, right? Anybody have one this morning? You don't have to confess out loud, but maybe you're there today. We've all had bad days. We've had days that have been terrible and horrible and no good. But what were to happen if on one of those days someone came into the room and they said that your great uncle, Erwin M. Smooter, had left you $5 million? $5 million! And you got the $5 million, and that probably would help you out, right? Having a really bad day, you find out you just inherit $5 million. That'd be a good thing. And so you get the $5 million, you take that $5 million, and you invest it. And man, it works. Because that investment grows, and over the years, you you make a lot more than just that $5 million. But your marriage falls apart. And your kids have nothing to do with you. And you go from one health issue to the next. The reality is, for all of the good that that money did on that one day, and even for all the years after that, now you're full of money, but you're alone, and you're discouraged, and you're sick, and you're bitter. What if we take the same scenario and add a different ending? You still get the $5 million, but you take it and you don't invest it. You go and spend it. Man, you go on expensive trips, you buy expensive cars, you buy your own chocolate factory, you even buy new gold Apple watches for all your family and all your friends. But in a year, maybe two, it's all gone. There's nothing left. You've you've funneled it all away. You're going to find yourself broke. And when the money's gone... All the friends and the family, they take off and go another direction. And so you're discouraged, you're alone, you're bitter, and now you're broke. What if we take the same scenario and we add a different ending, another ending? Let's say you still get the $5 million, and that you take it and you invest it, and it does really, really, really good. And you're married to the same gal for 60 years, and your kids grow up, and, and they do okay, and they move out, and they get jobs, and everything's fine. And, and now you're on your deathbed, and you're beginning to have some questions. What next? What happens now? Is, is this all there is? Is there something more? Is there only one true God? And do I know Him? And, and does it matter if I know Him or not? The sad and very sorrowful reality is that many people do not ask those questions on their deathbed. Many people reject God right up to the very end. Primo Levi was a Holocaust survivor. He did not believe in God. He was a chemist, author, a poet. And he recalled once when he thought that death was near. He was a prisoner. He thought that maybe even that day that he might die. 
he considered turning to God. And this is what he said. For one instance, I felt the need to ask for help and asylum. Then, despite my anguish, equanimity prevailed. One does not change the rules of the game at the end of the match, nor when you are losing. A prayer under these conditions would have been not only absurd, what rights could I claim and from whom, but blasphemous, obscene, laden with the greatest impiety of which a non-believer is capable. I rejected the temptation. I knew that otherwise were I to survive, I would have to be ashamed of it. The most terrifying shame in the universe is waking up on the other side of death and finding out that not only is God real, but that he is holy and he is just. The truth of the matter is, is that if you wake up in that mode and you have spent life rejecting him on this side of death, then you will be separated from him forever. So there are some people who may not engage with the questions. They may not on their deathbed think through the reality of life after death. But if we go back to the money, it's still the same story. You see, on our very, very bad day, the money helped. And maybe the money helped a long time. But that's all it did. It helped for a time. Because the money, in every one of those scenarios, is temporary. It doesn't last. Money, sports, hobbies, family, friends, good food, even the church, they're all good things, but none of those things last forever. They are temporary. Some of them may not even last your lifetime. So, is there any hope? Is there, is there any hope that lasts? Is there any hope that lasts a few more years or, or maybe even lasts forever? Is there a hope that lasts beyond death? Well, let's find out. Look with me at 1 Peter beginning, chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's writing to Christians who are suffering. Christians who had been going through a lot of terrible, difficult times. He was writing to believers who were having a hard time at work. They were having a hard time at their jobs, a hard time at school. They were having a hard time in their marriages, a hard time with children, hard time paying bills. They were having a hard time with their health. They were having a hard time facing death. They were people that in some way were, were walking around almost screaming for help. Good thing we're nothing like people like that, right? I mean, none of us have any of those problems, right? We, we don't have hard things that happen in our life. We, we don't need help, do we? Truth of the matter is, every single one of us in this room are in the middle of a hard time right now. Or you just came out of a hard time. Or you're about to go through a hard time. Boy, love that Dow. He's so encouraging, man. So is there any hope? Is there any hope? What kind of hope is Peter going to offer these suffering Christians? What kind of hope is he giving them for the hard things of life? Well, the hope that he gives them is worship. 
Peter says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Magnified be God. Glorified be God. He is worshiping. Worship is what he offers. Sometimes when we hear the word worship, we, we only think about music at a church service or even just a church service. And it is true that, that there is musical worship. But prayer is also worship. Preaching is also worship. Serving is worship. Marriage is worship. Honoring your parents is worship. School is worship. Work is worship. There's really no aspect of life that's not worship. In fact, Peter is writing a letter, and he's worshiping as he's writing this letter. But why? Why is he worshiping as he's writing these Christians? Why is he offering worship as hope for their lives? Look at the next part of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy. Peter's worship is being fueled by the mercy of God. Grace and mercy are similar. They're kind of the same. Both of them are expressions or they are acts of undeserved favor from God. Grace is undeserved favor for the guilt of our sin. Mercy is undeserved favor for the misery of our sin. But both of them are undeserved. God's grace and his mercy come for the sin and the misery of life. Have you ever had any sin in your life? Ever done the opposite of what God wanted you to do? Have you ever experienced any misery in life? Ever been bullied at school when you were young? Ever had trouble at work with the boss? Ever been worried about how you're going to pay that next bill? Ever been really bogged down by long-term health issues? Ever had any of those kind of things in life? Were you the bully, maybe? Were you the one causing stress in the marriage or stress at work? Were you the one conflicting others or were you the one being conflicted? The truth is there's lots of sin and there's lots of misery in this world. But there's only one cure. There's only one cure for great sin and great misery. And it only takes a minute just to go and get the paper or, or to go on the internet or watch the news on TV to find out there's great sin in the world and there's great misery in the world. But there's only one cure. And the cure is not a better marriage. And the cure is not a better job. The cure is not a better government. The cure is not even a better church. The cure for great sin and great misery is great mercy. The cure for misery, the cure for sin, is mercy. This undeserved favor from God. Peter is writing to these Christians going through hard times, and he gives them the worship of God's mercy because he wants them to remember they have received mercy. They have received matchless, infinite, wonderful mercy. But why would he tell them that? What, what difference did it make? What, what did mercy in their life do? Look what he says next. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Peter is worshiping God because God has caused him to be born again. Well, what does it mean to be born again? Well, simply put, it just means to have new life. So what is a person like before they are born again? 
What happens before that moment? What happens before there is new life? This is what Paul told the church at Ephesus. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before a person is born again, they are spiritually dead. Before a person is born again, they are hopeless and they are helpless. Paul goes on to say this to them. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Without Christ, we have no hope. Without Christ, we are spiritually dead. Without Christ, we are separated from God. There's no good news about being without Christ. We are totally dependent on the mercy of God to make us alive. I was born on May 26, 1972, University Hospital, Augusta, Georgia. Yes, that is a picture of me. It's not one I pulled off the internet. I was smiling when I was a kid, too. On that day that I was born, I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) I did not birth myself into the hospital that day. I did not cause myself to be born. And the same is true spiritually. We cannot give ourselves new birth. We can't spiritually bring ourselves to life. We are not capable of doing that. So how does a person become born again? Well, Peter says it's according to the mercy of God. It's why he's worshiping God. It's why he's encouraging these Christians who are suffering. He says the mercy of God has caused us to be born again. Paul said the exact same thing again to the Ephesians. But God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. According to what the scriptures tell us, God, because of his rich and awesome mercy, he invades the soul of a spiritually dead person and he brings life. God quickens the soul of a dead sinner with the truth of the gospel. And when that dead sinner is is quickened, when that dead sinner is born again, they respond in faith and devotion and put everything that they have into following Jesus Christ. How does God do that? How does God quicken a person's soul and warm their person's soul to the gospel? I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know. God doesn't give us some quantum metaphysical equation that helps our human minds comprehend what it means to be born again. So how do you know if you've been born again? One night, a very important religious leader named Nicodemus was talking to Jesus, and he asked Jesus the exact same question. Hey, how do you know if you've been born again? This is what Jesus said in response. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. A few weeks ago, I shared this quote from Billy Graham that is right along the lines of what Jesus is saying here. Billy Graham says what? He says, I can't see the wind, but I can see the effects of the wind. In other words, what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus is this. Something happens. 
When a person goes from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, something happens. What happens? Maybe the best way I've ever heard this explained, it goes like this. If you were to come up to me and ask me, hey, Dow, how do you know that you've been born again? I'd reach out, pull my driver's license out, and I'd say, what's right here on my driver's license? I know I've been born into this world because it says it right here on my license. My birthday is right there. That's why I know that I've been born. No. I wouldn't say that. That sounds a little bit foolish, right? I'd say, I know I've been born because I'm alive. <laughs> I'm breathing. I'm talking to you right now. That's how I know that I'm born. I don't have to pull my license out to prove my birth. The same is true for being born again. If you came up to me and said, hey, Dad, how do you know that you're born again? Well, I, I know it's on that card down in the church office. It says it down there somewhere. It's got, it's got the date that I stood at the front and shook the preacher's hand. It's not going to be my answer. I'm going to say, how do I know that I've been born again? Because I am spiritually alive. I once was lost, but now I'm found, and I haven't gotten over that. I once was blind. But now I see, and I haven't gotten over that. And I would tell you I'm born again today because when I sat on that pew this morning and heard that sin's curse is no longer on me, that my salvation is real. It may have started 30 years ago at First Baptist Church in North Augusta, but it exists now. Christ Jesus is my Savior. Not because I'm a pastor, but because He saved me. I have been born again. I love that this is Peter's answer. It's almost like he's saying, look, I know you guys know the story. I know you know that, that Jesus died on the cross, but He wants to help them in the hardest time of their life to remember it's not just that Jesus died on the cross, it's that Jesus died on the cross for them, that the penalty of their sin was satisfied. He's trying to get them to remember that the mercy of God has caused them to be born again. But so what? Why does it matter if we're born again? What does that do for us in daily life? Look what he says next. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A person who has been born again has a living hope. It's a hope that is alive. If we think about the word hope and how we use it on any given week, it's, it's kind of uncertain. Well, I hope my team wins. Well, I hope I do okay on that quiz. Well, I hope I get the promotion at work. Well, I hope the test results come back okay. It's, it's not certain. It's, it's like something that, that might happen. We're, we're kind of hoping something might happen. That is not what Peter's talking about. Peter is not talking about a hope like that. He is talking about a living hope. He's talking about a hope that's alive, a hope that does not disappoint, a hope that does not fail. So that if your team loses, and if you don't do good on the quiz, and if you don't get the promotion, and if the test results are bad, it doesn't change your hope. Your hope is alive. Nothing can kill it. 
Nothing can cause that hope to fail. Nothing can disappoint that hope. It's a hope that will bring complete and unending and, dare I say, intoxicating satisfaction to our souls today and forever. A living hope. What makes it alive? Look what he says next. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is alive because Jesus has been resurrected. Over the next few weeks, we will begin to see in our culture, and our community, a focus on Easter, which you will hear me say referred to as Resurrection Sunday, because we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what? Why does the resurrection of Jesus Christ matter? Well, the resurrection matters because it's the only way we can go from being a wretch to a saint. The resurrection matters because it's the only way we can go from being a smelly, dead corpse of spiritual deadness to alive, to being born again, to having aroma of eternity. The resurrection matters because the resurrection defines everything. How do I know that? This is what Paul said to the Romans. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Jesus actually died. Jesus of Nazareth, he actually died. He was placed into a tomb, but he did not stay dead. He rose again. He conquered the grave. He robbed the grave. Death is no longer master over him. If you've been rescued and you've been saved and you've been redeemed, and your ultimate confidence and your ultimate hope in this world is in Jesus Christ, then you have a living hope. You have a lasting hope. You have a hope that will not disappoint, and it will not fail. How do I know that? A few weeks after Jesus was crucified and rose again, Peter was preaching to a crowd one day, and this is what Peter said to the crowd. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. There was never a moment in the history of the world where it was remotely possible that Jesus was going to stay in the grave. It was never going to happen. He was indestructible. And don't miss this. That means if you've truly repented, if you've truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've truly received his salvation, if you're truly following after Jesus, then you are also indestructible. Death is no longer a master over Jesus. And if that's true and I'm in him, then that means death is no longer a master over me. If I die, I live. I do not die. My soul this morning on this stage is indestructible. Nothing can happen to me. 
because I'm cool, because I'm great. No, because Jesus is resurrected. Because Jesus is no longer dead. And because Jesus, by the mercy of God, has caused me to be born again. My friends, that is hope. It's huge hope. And I'm going to confess for all of us, we don't live in that hope. We just don't. From day to day, we are afraid of everything. We are worried about everything. We are stressed out about everything. And we forget this living hope. Boy, if I have a hope for us in the next few weeks, is that this living hope would come alive again. That our sure salvation, this, this true hope that we have in Jesus Christ, would not just be hokey religion on Sunday morning, but it would really matter at 3 o'clock on Monday. And it would really matter in the wreck on Thursday afternoon. That it would matter at the doctor's office. It would matter in the middle of the argument with our spouse. That it would matter where our children are going their own way. That this living hope in Jesus Christ would never leave. That we would be hanging on to it all the time. It's alive because he's alive. It's true because he's true. It's real because he's real. Even if you want to ignore the Bible and just look at history, it is impossible to ignore the person of Jesus Christ. And then when you bring in the truth of God's word, boy, the story just comes alive. About five or six years ago, singer Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote some songs about the death of his daughter. It was a tragic accident in their own driveway, and his son was driving the car. It was a, just a horrible situation. And he wrote a, a whole CD of songs, and, and one of the songs on there spoke again about the hope in Jesus in the, the hardest time, the worst moment of life. It goes like this. We planted the seed while the tears of our grief soaked the ground. The sky lost its sun, and the world lost its green to lifeless brown. Now the chilling wind has turned the earth hard as stone, and silently seed rises beneath ice and snow. And my heart's heavy now, but I'm not letting go of this hope I have that tells me spring is coming. Spring is coming. And all we've been hoping and longing for soon will appear. Spring is coming. Spring is coming. It won't be long now. It's just about here. The living hope of Jesus Christ is a promise that spring is coming. And I'm not talking about warm weather and pretty flowers. I'm talking about a season, infinite and eternal, of love and life and joy, a living hope. That is the hope that comes with Jesus Christ today. And that is the hope that will be with Jesus Christ forever.